Our guest this week is Jai Maliogis, who's a writer who, in his recent book, All Our Waves of Water, have written about the intersection between meditation and surfing. Although I've never really surfed, I can really understand how a sport like surfing can help you with with your mental balance. Uh, So stay tuned for discussions ranging from death to flow uh, and a lot about surfing. So hi Jamal, it's um, it's really great to, to meet you and I really enjoyed reading the book. Um, do you want to start off by giving us a, a brief background on what you do, who you are and your relationship both like personally and professionally to, to mental health in general? Yeah, um, yeah, good to meet you too, Harry. It's um, an honor to be on the show. I, uh, geez, well, I'm a mutt. I'm just like a, a complete mutt career-wise. But I, uh, I mean, I think I'm best known as like a meditating surfer, which That's is not cool. all I do. I would like that to be my only career. Um, <laughs> but um, I went. Uh, Let's see. I grew up a military brat. My dad, um, my mom and dad, dad was Catholic, mom was Jewish. They both sort of got into 60s exploration of um, psychology and spirituality. So I was raised sort of in this very ecumenical, eclectic way. But my dad was in the military, so we moved around a fair bit. And uh, anyway, we, we ended up landlocked um, after being... Uh, exposed to some ocean areas uh, when I was in high school and um, I was getting into trouble like you know typical sort of teenage stuff I wasn't really the bad kid I just got seemed to get caught more than my friends (laughs) and uh, (laughs) so uh, so I ended up on probation for like a DUI after getting suspended from school for smoking pot and uh, you know I felt myself like tail spinning um, was angry and and uh, getting back to the ocean I had this vague notion would would be the the best way forward and so I ran away from home when I was um, a junior in high school to Maui and um, I only lasted a few weeks over there but it sort of set the tone for the next 20 years um, my dad came over to get me and I write about that story in my first book yeah. saltwater Buddha but um, a um, I think just sort of um, I realized I wanted to to go on adventures to travel and see new things and be um, I think breaking out of my high school click sort of showed me that the world is bigger and um, and I wanted to uh, explore so I ended up going into um, after uh, in college, doing like philosophy and religion, and living as like a Buddhist monk for a year, and thinking I wanted to be a monk, and then going back to being like a surf bum and <laughs> studying philosophy and religion, I ended up doing journalism. Um, went to graduate school in journalism, and that sort of allowed me to keep traveling and um, exploring. And um, and yeah, I've kind of done that. Uh, over since graduating you know I'm 38 now um and in the process though I I wrote these started writing these like personal memoirs um about uh trap my travels and internal um process really and how both uh for me 
throughout like work relationships um just the intensity of life two things have really kept me centered and one is the ocean and the other is uh, mindfulness meditation um and kind of general uh, uh i've focused mostly on buddhist um meditation but i've i've explored different avenues too so um those, I mean, I would just be a crazy person completely if I didn't have those. And, and sometimes, and so I, I, and then I think writing is the third thing. Yeah. Memoir writing has been like understanding my own narrative and how kind of like I think therapy. how, yeah, and how the, the dark times um, and the sort of have actually been real teachers yeah and so it reflecting back it's been helpful to see that you know that like oh that was like the worst breakup you ever went through mm. but look how you came out of it and i think writing has helped me organize that in my own head so when i'm in a sticky patch again i can be like hey this really sucks right now <laughs> yeah. maybe you're learning something so yeah that's the that's the the long elevator yeah version. I, I completely agree with you about the kind of the the hard times being like the best teachers because specifically for me when I'm in a period of kind of a flare-up in my pain I can look back on the last time it happened and just you realize that it's all transient that it all kind of it all kind of fades away and it's not as bad as you think it is in that moment yeah it's um it's true um and I think as well when you're really feeling pain um you're motivated to get out of it yeah definitely. <laughs> and and so when everything's good and you're just like you know living high on the hog you're you're not motivated to really look into your mind and how it works yeah and so those, those moments when you are like all right what is really causing my suffering and and you know whatever the painkillers or the whatever you're using to distract yourselves when those stop working you know you have to go deeper and and so it is that is a gift um to the degree that you can uh you know have that perspective because you don't you obviously don't want to be drowning in pain until you get into just despair but if you can sort of turn that corner to be like what is this showing me and 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 also see the impermanent side of it that you know this has happened before and i will get through it this too will pass it it helps a lot yeah i suppose the kind of impermanence aspect relates back to the to the buddhist monastery days so do you want to give like a little overview of what you kind of did there what the practices were um and how you kind of i've seen that you wrote that the states of mind you reach in the monastery are really quite hard to obtain in the in the real world uh so how you go about kind of implementing them in your day the best you can in the environment of yeah the world that we live in yeah um yeah i mean i the first monastery I, i i stayed in various ones over the years but the one that where i was really serious um i was about 18 and i lived in a Chinese Buddhist monastery and it was Chan Buddhism which is the the predecessor of Zen actually before I went to Japan and um, it was done in the way it was done 2000 years ago so our schedule was like wake up at 3.30 in the morning (laughs) you know sleep on these hard beds meditate for an hour you know chant for an hour clean for an hour do Tai Chi for an hour you know it was just like 
very you know, prescriptive. You can imagine, yeah, you know, having four or five hours of like intensive meditation in the morning and then doing that again in the evening. And then you basically had the day you were, you know, doing some studying or working. And um, it was, uh, I loved it, frankly. It was, um, it was just to have your day, you know, we often think of having infinite options as like freedom, <laughs> but yeah. having no options when you are committed to it and you want it and you know what your day is like, your whole, you know, the whole monastery regime is set up to promote peace of mind. And, um, and you really, you know, could in those places uh, get into states where your mind was quiet. I mean, I don't mean to say... Um, meditation is not about going blank or void or anything right. like that, but being able to see how your thoughts arise and you know really having your mind be a, a, a serene lake and seeing how the ripples just um, you know move at their their base. Um, and I never got into I think the, any of the highest states of meditation that are talked about, but you. You start to see how that how it's possible, yeah. And you and you meet other other monks and nuns who are, you know with these radiant faces who um, I've been doing this for forty years, and you think, wow, if I did this in a few weeks, like where's their mind at? Um, and I love that, but ultimately, after a year of that, I decided, you know, my abbot was saying, you know, this is a year a lifelong commitment. And you might want to try college first. It was actually yeah. a requirement for them that you try college. Um, and I did, and I got a girlfriend, and then got into uh, the rat race, so to speak. Um, and in the beginning, it felt like desperate because I was like, well, I'm never going to get that same peace of mind out here, and yet I don't want to be a monk. So this is a bummer. And I think that's why this, <laughs> the surfing life attracted me because it was like a world outside the monastery where it felt like it wasn't about just money and fame and mm. it's about connecting with nature and you can also explore um these peaceful states but obviously you know I had to get a job at some point um <laughs> and i think you know in retrospect looking back what surfing was doing was helping me explore meditation in an active way like the ocean is dynamic and it tosses you around and you get beat up and stuff. But you're also, it's like, it's not personal. You know, you're, the stresses are manageable. <laughs> you're having fun. Yeah. And so you can start to explore, well, like what, you know, the monastery was never training me to be a, a stone Buddha or something. It's like the idea is to go out and encounter, you know, not peaceful situations and be able to manage them. Yeah. And so, um, Surfing worked as a sort of microcosm for that, and I think that's really helpful to have with your mindfulness practice. If you have sort of like a still, you know, maybe you do 20 minutes a day of stillness, and then you do some exercise where you also take your, you see that as part of your mindfulness practice, whether it's, you know, doing taekwondo or surfing or ballet or playing football, whatever. It's like you extend it into that because it's a, a perfect way to have um, all those emotions of life be contained um and then you can start to bring that into like the traffic on the highway or whatever yeah. but um but i've come to see like okay in in the world you're not going to get into these like high samadhi states unless you're 
but that's okay. On the path to, let's say, enlightenment, you know, whatever that is, that even the Buddhists say that's not the point to get into these states of bliss. These states of bliss are informative um, for seeing the true nature of your mind, but they're not the point. The point is to live, be a kind, happy individual, you know, who's contributing to society and, and helping others. And so you don't need to reach those high bliss states to live, have a, a robust mindfulness practice in the world. Um, what you need to do is sort of learn an approach to, um, and the approach is really one of like accepting your thoughts. So I, I, mm. I use the metaphor of like, okay, if I'm not trying to get to some, you know, uh, serene lake, I'm basically sitting down every day and saying, what is my mind like? And how can I see that the stormy days have the same nature um, of, of, of water as, this, as the serene lake? Yeah. And if I don't fight against those, like, those angry emotions or those fearful emotions, but just see them as, like, as energy moving through my mind, I become um, less controlled by them and more able to just sort of greet them. And, yeah. uh, and so... You know, that's the metaphor. Easier said than done. But, you know, day after day, you <laughs> you had something to work with. So and, did, uh, yeah. Did it take you a kind of a while once you've had that experience of being in a kind of monastery where it's built to obtain certain states of mind? Did it take a while to lose the attachment to kind of getting to one of those states in the real world? Or were you... yes. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely it did. Um, because, and that's actually a, a big warning. And, and it's the benefit of actually starting your meditation practice out in the world. Yeah. And my teachers used to say that. They'd say, well, you know, the monastery, you, you put this um, difficult, um, you know, you, you're trying out this difficult regimen where they say, okay, wake up early, you know, don't do this, don't do that. You know, you're not... Um, chasing like delicious food or movies or you know girls or whatever it's just like and those things are meant to be kind of difficult to challenge yourself in a way until you realize that it's actually quite peaceful to just have a simple life but out in the world you're um your the challenges are there all the time you know you, you don't have to put something on yeah. to make it difficult it's just it is challenging and so that's a benefit and um, because in the monastery they often say like you can get attached to these blissful states so you become kind of um, just a bliss seeker yeah. <laughs> essentially <laughs> where anything that like kills your vibe is like you don't want anything to do with it you know yeah. and and uh, and again that's not um, that's sort of just a a limited version of uh, of meditation you know it's very narrow and so but in the beginning yeah it did take time to think that okay not judge my meditations in in juxtaposition to a long retreat and say well this is a bad meditation and I'll never get that peaceful feeling because um, often those and, are the ones you learn the most from probably if you can treat them in the right way those those hard ones yeah Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a 
I think the enlightened perspective is more, much more important than the the blissful, uh, the top of the mountain. You know, it it, it um, just like life. If you can learn to accept those uh, big emotional waves, I mean, that's far more valuable um, over the long run. And also, you know, it allows you to then be there for someone else who's who's yeah. uh, who's in that state, you know, because yeah. you've been there yourself. So the other kind of string to your bow that you said was keeping you sane was surfing. Um, mm-hmm. Why do you think? Like I get it as well. Whenever you're near a piece of water, whether that be a, a kind of flowing river or a lake or the sea, you do get a feeling of calm. Um, and I I can't really explain it. But do you have any insight onto onto why that might be? One of my friends is this guy Wallace J Nichols, who's written a, a book called Blue Mind, and he's a he's a marine biologist who then like went and talked to all the neuroscientists and he got them all together and tried to figure out like why is water so peaceful and um i mean the answer is like infinite because there's so many so many nuances i mean we are made of water it's the sort of the the source of life um but the the mindfulness um angle on it is interesting i mean when you when you hook someone to an fMRI and you let them float in the water yeah um, what you see happening is something similar to what happens in in uh, a lot of forms of meditation where the prefrontal cortex where we're doing a lot of our planning and um, that often triggers a lot of anxiety mm. um, but also allows us to do amazing things like you're doing you know with climate change map out data and um, etc uh it quiets down and a lot of the areas around um sort of motor areas of the brain and um that aren't generally as stimulated um start to light up so it's not that you're getting less brain activity but you're getting it in different areas and um that are often i think uh neglected yeah (laughs) um and so uh less thought of future or past and or even um self and more engagement with like feeling and presence and the water i mean one you're getting the sensory stimulus on your skin from the water um secondly uh you know it's um you're re-immersing. I mean, we we were in the womb for nine months mm-hmm. in a water environment, and so I think there's some hearkening back, maybe, to that relaxation state. But that's when you're floating there. It's interesting when you think about surfing. You're mm-hmm. getting some of that sensory stimulus that gets you out of prefrontal cortex mode, but you're also getting a lot of adrenaline yeah. um, from the waves and from the challenge of it and from the exercise. And interestingly, when you look at flow states, you know, the states of mind where you're um, in peak performance and often um, uh, they're very pleasant states as well, uh, the, the formula doesn't, isn't like the more you, you're just like in complete relaxation, nor is it 
um, you're in like hyperdrive adrenaline mode. Um, what, uh, it's a balance of them. So um, usually when you see athletes, yeah. they want to cha- challenge themselves just enough to get some adrenaline, so maybe a little bit of fear or a little bit of like, whoa, what's happening? But then not so much that they go, uh, uh, that they freeze up. Yeah. And the uh, surfing environment allows for, I think, to frame fear or frame anxiety in a positive because you're doing something you love. The water's beautiful, but you know, you might be scaring yourself a little bit. And so um, I think a lot of that can come together into a flow state where you're hyper present, you're performing well. Um, and and that's sort of a metaphor for bringing mindfulness into like the the you know the wild world so to speak um and i can't say i'm in that place all the time when i'm no. surfing but i've glimpsed it and i think um again it's another reason why uh and i don't know what the water you know how much the water has to do with that or how much it has yeah. to do with just the fact that i love surfing because when you look at like math students and um they get a you know most kind of- well, they get if you look at most people like if you if you add a bunch of stress to a math test like hey pop quiz and you have cameras on you most people do worse except for the math lovers they will do better with more stress and I think um, it's the framing it's how you frame the feelings of adrenaline so yeah. if you're doing something you love and you're confident in you can frame that stress in the positive and then it can yeah. add to a flow state otherwise it sort of spirals. That's really fascinating because I've the only times I can really consider myself to have had that kind of flow is is one when I was running and you just feel completely weightless and nothing can really put you off your stride but the other time is skiing and specifically off-piece skiing where there is that kind of a little bit of that element of risk but that kind of almost focuses you even more and you're just very much in that moment you kind of you can't I suppose you can't really you can't really afford to think about other stuff while you're doing it because you're just Mm -hmm. so focused on that and I know that's something that I think you said that like as soon as you step into the water and you feel it on your body and on your face you don't really have time to think about those worries but I don't know whether you'd agree yeah I think you know um you know when you're just kind of strolling down the beach and you feel the water on your feet i mean it's one more sensory stimulus to keep you present um and then the also uh interestingly just to add one more factor nature is very complex and so the way water moves or the way like leaves move in a forest they've actually found is more stimulating to your brain (laughs) than when you're in a city but it's stimulating in a way that's really rejuvenating to it because it's not um the mind can kind of scan the environment without um, and relax at the same time. So you're getting a lot of stimulus again, but it's not the kind of stimulus that stresses us out. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I think that stimulus is what helps keep you present because it's like, wow, the, you know, you're taking in all these ripples and waves and bubbles and sky, and it's like the mind doesn't have to try to be 
present. It just is. Yeah. And then, um, and then when you add in like, hey, I'm not going to turn my back on the ocean or the waves, that's like another hyper presence. And I think those two come together really nicely. Um, and then if you add in routine, if it's something you've practiced, like your first day out surfing, you're not going to probably get into a flow state because <laughs> you might be like, ah, <laughs> I'm getting yeah. just beaten up. Yeah, but then once you practice and practice and practice, you remove another barrier, which is having to think about what you're doing, and your body goes on automatic. So, like, if you ski a fair bit and you go off piste, and yeah, you don't, you're not thinking about like where my legs need to move. I'm just skiing, and I'm enjoying again the all the stimulus from nature, which is a really highly highly complex environment, and then you know being in the motor areas of my brain so I can't plan uh, or, or or stress out about that test tomorrow. And I think that is a is just a place where we don't go enough in the modern world. Okay. It's like it's not like you shouldn't be planning or shouldn't be thinking about the past, but it's like we need that daily to get out of that mode because uh, otherwise we're just constantly using that planning part to ping our stress center, the amygdala, and then yep. our bodies go into like overdrive. I also think, do you, do you get the same thing where if I go for a run or I, I do some kind of sport and I'm chasing a certain target, like I give myself a goal or something like that, then you I kind of can't get in that state of flow. I kind of, you lose the enjoyment of it and you, you kind of start chasing something and and then that results in you enjoying something less. So I don't know how do you kind of balance surfing what you want to achieve when you're surfing with getting in that relaxed state. Yeah, I mean, it's different for everyone, but I'm more on your wavelength, um, pun intended, where I just, <laughs> uh, yeah, like to be outside of the quantifiable um, and the chasing because um, you can easily get into a negative state when you're surfing and be like, oh, I've only gotten two waves, and, and that happens all the time. Um, but if you can sort of transcend that, yeah, and be with the the moment and, and just, you know, be with the light on water when you're waiting for a wave and then be with the paddling when you're paddling and enjoying the challenge and then being with the riding when you're riding, it's it, it, it seems to uh, catalyze the flow more. Yeah. Um you know, other people are different, but I, I have a great sort of anecdote of a friend who is a kind of like a, a Olympic level runner. You know, he never made the Olympics, but he was always in the trials and stuff, and um, won a lot of races in college. And he was uh, basically burning out at like yeah. 32, which is still a healthy age for running, especially um, like a long if it's long distance. Yeah. Yeah, and he quit, and he just took like three weeks off of like this is like 20 years of you know training and running and uh and then you know he was like riding his bike and like skateboarding but he was like you know i'm not really i just want to go for a run i'm just gonna go on a casual run and he was a short distance runner like 5k okay. um but he ended up because the first time he wasn't timing himself in his like life he ended up running like 20 miles and just <laughs> feeling euphoric like just absolutely euphoric and he thought hmm i mean maybe i'm gonna do this i'll try that again tomorrow and he, and then he just started running for fun and he ended up 
having never run a marathon in his life, uh, just running for fun, qualifying for like the Boston Marathon yeah, is, and then yeah. getting into the Olympic trials and uh, and all this stuff. And he, you know, he didn't make it to the Olympics in the marathon, but he had more fun in his training than he ever had in his lifetime. And uh, yeah, so I think there's something to that. Um, but again, it might not have happened if he hadn't been timing himself his whole life. So I think there's, you know, you probably have to go back and forth and, and yeah. try different things. So one thing I wanted to quiz you on, which is kind of going off on a bit of a tangent, but I think a lot of people that listen to this have a real kind of fear of dying. So this is going off on a real tangent. Uh-huh, <laughs> um, yeah. And you wrote something that really, really interested me in that you can't... I think people, a lot of people have that fear of death because they don't know what, what's coming and potentially they think that there's there's nothing after that. Um, yeah. But you wrote about the idea that you can't... No, like No one's proved that there is nothingness after you die. Um, so I wonder if you could just like elaborate a bit on that. Yeah, yeah. Um... I mean, I've been thinking a lot about this because I lost my dad about a year and a half ago, and um, Sorry. it was really thank you. Yeah, it was it was a I mean an intense experience, of course. Um, but until you, I've always been someone who's just agnostic about it. You know, I'd say, well, I don't know, um, and I I think I would swing back and forth between being like a strict materialist where I was like, well, obviously, you know, the brain animates consciousness and, you know, yeah, you go back into the leaves and the grass, your molecules do, but consciousness is sort of as an individual notion is done. Um, so then other times being like, well, you know, who knows? Um, and, uh, I think, but encountering death, you know, with my dad, who was a you know fairly spiritual person, um, and seeing how gracefully he actually passed, I think because of his his faith, um, not necessarily in a specific thing, um, yeah. but he was always someone who embraced um, the notion that uh, of a soul, yeah. um, and uh, and he had a really um, I'd say graceful death. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I got into, I think, reading more about it and um, and just thinking about it more seriously. And one of one of my teachers at Columbia is Robert Thurman, who's... Uh, Uma Thurman's dad. <laughs> uh, Uman Thurman's dad yeah. and uh, one of the most prominent Buddhist scholars. And he's also a real philosopher and really well read in the sciences and he basically is you know points out i think rightly that that nothing is something that we'll never be able to prove yeah. you know and that um in fact when people die clinically and their heart stops and their brain dies usually you know these near-death experiences they have these great adventures or they um, in dream or whatever where they meet spiritual beings or they often see themselves hovering above yeah. um, and so obviously scientifically that doesn't prove that they've been on that journey um, but there is a, a really 
fascinating book called Erasing Death, uh, re- recently written by um, one of the chief resuscitation doctor at Stony Brook, oh, wow. who has quantified all the data of people who have these experiences, and he's actually been able to show that, like, well, often when the person was brain dead, and a number of times they'll come back and say, I heard what you guys were talking about, you know, I saw you. And you moved, you said this about me, you know, you said like, oh, look, his nose looks funny or something. And you're like, he was brain dead, you know. And so clearly our understanding, again, it doesn't prove that there's a spirit hovering above or something, but it suggests that there could, that consciousness may not be located in the brain alone. Um, And that, you know, maybe there's something to this notion that mystics have been saying for, you know, millennia that... um, you know, consciousness um, is uh, not dependent on on um, on the brain. And again, this is out of my wheelhouse. But when you look at um, even the way that we're studying consciousness, um, I think it's still fairly rudimentary because mm. we've been coming at it from this biological perspective, where you have to. Um, Nothing exists where, after. Right, right, where it's like, well, that's the only way of measuring. But, you know, now that we're into um, particle physics and we can see that actually even our ways of measuring are flawed on some level yeah. <laughs> because, you know, you try to measure rea- uh, the building blocks of reality at their most fundamental, and everything goes haywire. It's like, you know... I'm not going to go into quantum mechanics, but, you know, I think everybody's read enough to know that, like, we really are just scratching the surface in terms of um, understanding the building blocks of our universe. And so, essentially, I think you have to approach death nowadays um, saying, look, it's very dogmatic to say we know that nothing happens. Nobody can prove that, and I don't think anybody ever will be able to prove it. Um, you can say that it, it appears from what we know that, that consciousness may go on. And then there's all these people who have explored consciousness deeply in ways that scientists will never be able to, like all these Buddhist monks or Sufis or so, so forth, who have gone in, you know, spent decades in silence. And they say, actually, I remember all my past lives. I remember, you know, the transition between deaths. I, I can, you know... Yeah. And it just becomes intriguing where you're like, well, these guys are making a lot of sense in other areas. And I've I've seen them help people with their mindfulness meditation in very practical ways. And then they're also saying, hey, I've experienced this. And so I think at the very least you have to say, this could be real and I should take care of my um, – I shouldn't uh, – just make a decision you know in one way or the other and i've i've come to um i think kind of reflect on my years of practice and experiences with um teachers um who are far more experienced in meditation than me and then also looking at the data and say you know i'm banking on the on consciousness continuing on i don't really know where it's going or how it's going to feel or whether it's an individual consciousness or something that's more you know surround sound or something (laughs) but i'm banking on something you know at death 
continues that is um, awareness. And yeah. and I, I do my practice that way. And, you know, whether we go into, you know, again, what happens, I'm sort of open-minded. But mm-hmm. it's helped me, I think, I think it's a great way to live your life anyway, whether you're right or not, because it's sort of like Pascal's wager, you know, like if you are wrong, <laughs> you don't lose anything. Yeah. And maybe you live your life in such a way where you're you're kind and you're happy and you're trying to pursue yeah. happiness because you believe that's where your consciousness, you know, a happy mind and a kind mind will go into a happy, kind place, yeah. hopefully. That's whatever, you know, folks say. If you're wrong, okay, you know, lights turn out. <laughs> if you, you know, if you, um, if you live your life and you're an asshole and you think it doesn't matter, I'm just going to steal and and pillage and and because you know life is ridiculous and has no meaning. Yeah. And I'm just a sack of jeans and bones, <laughs> and so you know I'm just going to get mine and fuck it. Excuse me. Screw everybody else. That's okay. <laughs> you know, and you're wrong. Um, you know, then, you know, maybe your mind is just, your consciousness migrates into a place where it's, you know, it's just greed and, or, or, you know, the Buddhists would say you would, you would migrate toward another life that's sort of on that level of consciousness. So, you know, if it's just, whatever that is. And so I think it, it benefits you to, 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 to say, hey, this is possible, and um, I'm going to approach my life in such a way that where consciousness matters, yeah, and um, and where my mind is matters. That's kind of where I'm at with it. it but, it's um, really fascinating because when you think about it, most of the big world religions have some kind of like Christianity has the idea of a soul, Buddhism mm-hmm. and, and and Hindu um, have the idea of reincarnation, and I've from from a kind of personal anecdote i've um i've had the experience of being in a room when loved ones have passed away and once Uh you and when you're there and you can see you can see a body you you kind of think well actually it's almost as if that's just a vessel and there's you i kind of thought that there must be something something else to it because because it can't like <laughs> in my brain physically mm-hmm. it can't just end like it can't just yeah stop and there one minute there's there's consciousness and awareness and and all that stuff and then within the space of nanoseconds there's nothing um yeah but i think it's something you could debate for <laughs> for a long time so, so to kind of wrap things up, we ask everyone what their their kind of top tip would be to keep men to keep their mental health in balance. Um, it might be the thing that you do, or, or the thing that you you'd advise others to do. So, so what would be your kind of advice? Hmm. Top tip. Um, well, I would say you know. What's been most helpful for me um, in my mental health practice has been self-acceptance. Yeah. Um, you know, we live in this society where we're inundated with both self-help regimes saying you should get better, <laughs> mm. and then 
our own jealousy triggers and um, and all these ads are feeding us this idea that we should be different than we are. Yeah. Um, and life should be perfect. But, <laughs> right, right. But everybody is struggling <clears throat> and we're built with this biology, you know, where our brains are going to send us all kinds of difficult emotions and difficult um, messages along with joys. Yeah. But um, to, to say that I'm enough right now and I'm going to accept the way, not fight my own mind, um, is it doesn't mean you can't also strive to be better. Yeah. But you won't enjoy being better if you don't enjoy the process you're in now. Yeah. And I think that starts with self-acceptance and accepting um, that you are not the thoughts that your brain is churning out. You know, you're you're something more than that, and 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 you have the ability, <clears throat> excuse me, to um, to take on that that mindset of of accepting now. <clears throat> That's been really helpful to me. Uh, yeah, and I, I I keep coming back to it. I think a quote you probably heard it before that will really kind of resonate with you is is that John Kabat-Zinn when he said, "You can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf." So it's like yeah. the thoughts are there, but they're going to happen, and it's you. You're you're in control of how you deal with them. And I think something you wrote on uh, that really resonated with me was the idea of I can't remember exactly how you worded it, but having two arrows. And I think it's really helped me with kind of pain because the first arrow goes in, and that's that is your pain. But actually, you don't need to get hit by the second one which is your reaction to it and thinking this shouldn't be happening to me telling yourself the story of oh this is happening now so in in the next day it'll be the same and then I'll never be able to do this I'll never get a job blah 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 so you, it's right. almost cutting down if you can accept the first thing that's happened you can almost cut down on all of that secondary suffering which I really like yeah, yeah, and that's basically in a nutshell what I'm saying with the self-acceptance piece where, you know, you're hit with all of these um, arrows that your mind is throwing out or that life is throwing out. And, um, yeah, and if you can sort of exactly be with them as they occur and then you watch your reaction and if you if you're aware of the reaction then you don't have to buy into it you have the choice you know where like oh i'm reacting this way but i don't have to buy into that and and necessarily follow it you know yeah. toward like 40 different stories i can just say okay i'm experiencing pain today you know it's i'm reacting i'm angry and then you say okay that's natural you know yeah. to react and then you have a, a a chance to sort of navigate from that if you say, hey, I'm experiencing, you know, a big win today and I'm feeling joyful. And then you also say, well, I'm going to ride this this wave, you know. Um, this is a good one. But <clears throat> if you can catch yourself in the reaction, you have the choice whether to sort of um, believe it or not. Yeah. And, uh, and take it further. So, yeah, it's, um, I think... Uh, I'm I'm glad you brought up that arrow metaphor, which is not my own. That was the Buddha's, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I find it helpful. Awesome. So, just to finish off, where can where can we find more about what you do and 
and more specifically about the book All Our Waves Are Water, which is which which is a really great read and it helped helped give me perspective on on a lot of things and I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Um, yeah. <clears throat> well, my name's Jamal Yogis. It looks like Jaimal Yogis, and um, but it's my, nothing to do with uh, Eastern spirituality, is it? <laughs> no, my name is Lithuanian. Um, <laughs> my last name, and so yeah, J A I M A L Y O G I S dot com, um, and I'm on all the social sites. So you know, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and um, yeah, the book's easy to find on. On, in bookstores and Amazon and such. Um, so, uh, so yeah, hope to connect with you out there um, or in the real world. <laughs> awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hi, guys. Just a quick reminder that we aren't trained psychologists or psychiatrists or therapists. And if you're having your own problems, don't hesitate to go and see your GP or use the services of charities like Mind or Calm or anything like that. Cheers.